the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. Nice to see you. We are at episode 16 now. They keep piling on. Um, what are we talking about today, Hannah? Today, we are talking about a, a little election. A little, you know, marginal. Marginal election. The small town mayor. In a corner of the... Corner yes. of the world. Yes, this this is a happened a few weeks ago now. It was the London mayoral elections, and uh, it raised lots of interesting uh, issues. And we're only going to focus on on one thing because a friend of ours suggested this as a as a possible topic. Yes, this was um, the the London mayoral election had a couple of I think key. Um, plot shifts and a lot of them revolved very much around the South Asian communities in London um, which we found very interesting Um, but there are lots of aspects of the election in London that we're not going to talk about so this is necessarily a piece of it yes. that I think we found to be yeah. most fascinating. So so we're going to talk about how the South Asian communities made an appearance and were used and targeted in various ways and differentiated in various ways through the election campaign that led to the election of Sadiq Khan, uh, who's, who was the Labour candidate and who has become London's first Muslim mayor. Do you want to give a bit of context? A bit of con- there's well, this is gonna necessarily be a pathetic rehashing of the history of London. The so the outgoing mayor, um, Boris Johnson, um, a character of a man, really, and he trades on that um very much. Um Boris was a conservative um politician, he still is a conservative politician making a bid for conservative leadership at the moment. Um famously backing Britain's exit from the EU. So that is the kind of context um of the office at this point. Boris Johnson served two terms, I believe. Um he was re-elected as mayor actually when I was living in London. Um and I saw him at a movie theater once and he looks just as ridiculous in person as he does on camera on TV, um, and the, the this particular mayoral race was quite fascinating because Labour put forward um, a candidate named Sadiq Khan, as you've said, who's a Muslim, and he's he has mobilized his personal story to a great extent in his own election campaign, which we're not going to focus on too much, but he grew up, um, in, on a council estate. His father Uh, was a bus driver. He's a second generation British Pakistani Muslim. Um, and as you say, he's, that, that is a big part of, of the campaign he ran. And, uh, yes. 
which is quite fascinating, um, I think, because the Conservatives um, over the last few years and maybe forever have often targeted second-generation Pakistani children of bus drivers as being potential terrorists or yes. being potential, um, you know, risks to the nation. They're, you know, the, um, we've talked about Islamophobia in yeah. Britain quite a bit yes. on this podcast, and this was no exception. Yeah. Um, the conservatives did make moves in that direction. Yes, um, so the Tory candidate was Zach Goldsmith, who is a multimillionaire. Yes, um, he. I would love to know yeah. where his savings are yes. in the world. Let's look back to our episodes on Panama Papers, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, there were there are a couple of um, particular examples of campaign strategy that we'd like to we'd like to focus on. Uh, firstly, the the famous pamphlets. Do you want to do you want to describe these wonderful Objects. Yeah, the pamphlet. The pamphlets are really funny, I think, because the we encountered them partly through the media, which reported on this liberal, progressive, um, labor-leaning media reported on this to a bit. But we also encountered it because people that we knew received these pamphlets and had very clear, distinctive political and emotional responses to receiving them and. They will put it. We'll post a link because it's it's difficult to talk about yeah. something that is so visually striking yes. through an audio yeah. format. But they were targeting a particular cross section of London's South Asian community, which is um, a middle class and upwardly mobile Hindu community. Um, but of course the spatial organization of London South Asian communities is more complicated. Um, combine that with the conservative um, failure to do proper geographical research ab about where different South Asian communities live in London, and you had these pamphlets dispersed throughout a huge cross-section of South Asian communities who speak many different languages, practice many different religions, come from a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, and the pamphlet said things like... Do you want to talk about more about this? Go ahead. The, the pamphlets were mobilizing particular um, political and cultural issues that the Goldsmith campaign thought would be yes. of particular interest to middle-class Hindus who they felt they might be able to convince to vote conservative. Yes. Um, they highlighted their support for Prime Minister Narendra Modi when he was here in Britain on his, his big tour, um, and how Zach Goldsmith is a big supporter of Modi, and how the Conservatives in London support Modi's government and his um, particular policies, yes. um, some of which many Londoners find deeply problematic. Um if not downright offensive and dangerous. they These pamphlets emphasized um, the conservative approach to um, inherited family heirlooms of value and taxes. So they, they promised tax exemption and low taxes on family jewelry, 
which is such an absurd, strange item to put on a leaflet that you put through someone's door. Yes. Um, What else did they... Well, there was was also the... I mean, you you mentioned the the failure of... To, to conduct any kind of geographical research. Of course, the, the other failure was was the the notion that British Hindus would be interested in exactly the same issues. So you, you, you ended up having leaflets targeting Gujarati Hindus, uh, which had things about what Zach Goldsmith did for the British Tamil community. Uh, and the the idea that because the Gujaratis and the Tamils are both Hindus, that somehow they'd be, they are the same. This sort of violent homogenization, violent way in which the differences between the Hindus are erased out by a, a colonial imperialist white power. That's a really fascinating aspect of this debate, I think, because that that approach and that assumption is so... It, it is a repeat, essentially, of how the British colonial government wrote about, understood, and managed, as they put it, their Indian colonial subjects in the early 20th century. So kind of at the, after the turn of the century, you have this very powerful form of administration in India that, that categorizes the Indian population based on religious difference. Um, more so than regional differences, linguistic differences, class differences, um, even towards the end of mm. of the Raj in India, caste differences, which yes. had had been previously yeah. very important yeah. and central yes. to British imaginations yes. of, of who Indians were and how the Indian population organized itself. It becomes the religious differences that overshadow and overpower any other kind yes. of of distinction or difference yes, yes. Um, and and diversity. I mean, we talk about it as difference, but it's also, yes. you know, it's a bit more, yeah. there's more agency yeah. here, I think, than... Yeah, Yasmin Khan has written about this in her book, The Great Partition, right, that during the, in the lead-up to partition stroke independence in 1947, uh, there was a failure to, to look at uh, Indians through any lens other than the religious. And you have this, this, this similar discursive strategy going on where you you take these two completely different communities uh, which have their own interests, their own concerns, their own you know value systems and so on and so forth and you treat them as if they're the same because they share a faith. It's interesting too, I mean the, the British state does that but the nationalist parties also yes. attempt to, to mobilise that because for them it is one of the ways in which the colonial yes. state can understand their demands. Yes. Yes. So they then devise ways of organizing and mobilizing Indians in support of yes. independence, particularly yes. in the, the 1930s, that that has to in some ways rely yeah. on these, these um, more ambiguous blanket religious categorizations yes. um, in order to make claims yeah. from the colonial government yes. at independence. Um, and that, given given the contemporary context, which is serious animosity between the, the states of India and Pakistan and Britain's 
very fascinating role mediating that animosity and hostility. The fact that London is now a place in which Pakistanis and Indians live and interact with one another and build diasporic communities, it makes sense in a way that the Goldsmith campaign would see the colonial story as opposed to you know a more ethnographic anthropological story which is one of dynamic you know community organization and there were were multiple moments in the campaign when I think we both felt a sense of deja vu in terms of British colonial tropes and colonial politics Um, there was the the infamous video uh, campaign video which again we'll put a link to in the the description uh, which is this song uh, sung in multiple languages, including Hindi, Urdu, Gujarati, Bengali, Tamil, Punjabi, and Mandarin, uh, about how Zach Goldsmith's going to win. And it reminded me very much of those Bathe Newsreel videos showing Indians celebrating the empire and celebrating, you know, the Delhi Dabar or the coronation or, or, or so, so on, you know. These are the happy happy natives who are secure in the in the comfort that they derive from being looked after by their white masters. And they consent to yes. the rule. The, yes. the image is one of of governance with the consent of the people, yes. which subaltern studies scholars, particularly Ranajit Guha, has argued that that is not actually the case, that the the British government tried to create this image of Indian consent to their rule, yes. but in fact, there was not. Yes. Partly because there was no electoral or in, um, institutional way in which Indians could legitimately consent, yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah. But also because there was genuine non-consent. Yeah. Yes. Um, there was genuine... Um, resentment and hostility yes. Yes. and hatred for yes. the colonial yes. state, um, which is fascinating because I think we've seen that same that same opposition to this kind of campaigning yeah. on social media. Yes. Many many people who received these pamphlets, who shared this video, yeah. read these activities and these strategies as being deeply offensive and also in some ways farcical. I think the farcical bit is really important. You know, we we are going to go on, we're going to spend the rest of the the episode today talking about the the politics of, of the campaign, but we should start off by saying how incompetent it is and how, how it is uh, characterized by, uh, a, a very deep fundamental level of ignorance. Uh, so there's a, a famous interview, which again has been doing the rounds on social media, of Zach Goldsmith attending the Asian Awards uh, in in London, and he's interviewed at, at this award. And he talks about how how he's a huge Bollywood fan, and then the interviewer asks him for his favorite film, a favorite Bollywood star, and he he is completely flustered and he can't can't name one. And then the interviewer presses on and asks him whether he can name 
a single film or style, and again he can't. Uh, and you see the you see the panic in his eyes as he's he's his sort of uh, vague, uh, empty words are being being challenged, and and what he reveals is how, that he knows nothing about this, and all he's trying to do is to appear knowledgeable and supportive in the hope that that gets him some some Indian votes. It's cringeworthy and hilarious. Yes. You like to repeat this video and I hate how you repeat this video because for me it is so it's so horrific and so painful. It's like how I can't watch the office. That which, it's too it's too too much. Which is fascinating because the there've been a number of uh edits and cuts of this video one featuring David Brent uh <laughs> on a date talking trying to show off his knowledge about classical music and, and he fails completely. There's another one with Alan Partridge trying to show off how, how much he knows about the Beatles and again he doesn't know anything. And it's that perfect moment where where someone has clearly been trying to show off and, and then gets caught out, um, which, is some, which is joyous. Especially when it is someone like Zach Goldsmith yeah. who just exudes privilege and arrogance. I think just the, the the belief that he deserves to be the mayor of London, yeah. um, which is which makes these campaign strategies all the more absurd. Especially when he's running against a working class second generation British Pakistani, uh, both in terms of class and race. I think uh, the the out of touch nature of of him as as a white millionaire. Uh, in a city like London, I think was was, and that that was one of the things I could never understand. You know, forget forgetting about ethics or, or morality, I, I never understood the the strategy, the strategic decision that lay behind choosing to run on such an openly racist campaign when you are trying to win over a city like London. You know, this is not the home counties. This is not a, a, an English village where where the entire population is white. This is one of the most mixed, diverse cities in the world, and you decide to run on a platform that is so openly racist. It's, it is fascinating. If I, I do think there was support for Zach Goldsmith outside of London among people who couldn't vote for him, but were who were people who were voting in local council elections on the same day. So in a sense, conservative wins around the country were, you know, votes of support for Zach Goldsmith. But, of course, it didn't translate into any sort of electoral power for him, um, which is a, a fascinating thing. I mean, to con- and, and to contrast Zach Goldsmith with Boris Johnson, um, I mean, aside from the fact that they are both extremely privileged yes. white men of a similar age... Zach Goldsmith a bit younger, but the Boris Johnson strategy is so different. Zach yeah. Goldsmith appears as a a conservative. He is a conservative model yeah. in a sense, whereas Boris Johnson kind of ruled London yeah. with this sort of maverick hand. Where yeah. sometimes he was he was towing the party line and yeah. other times as we've seen with with the exit from the EU yeah. he doesn't tow the party line yeah. um, and 
for the conservatives to not recognize what it was that made Boris Johnson a possible yeah. London mayor yeah. and not recognize that Zach Goldsmith had none of those qualities, yeah. especially yes. given Labour's decision to run Sadiq Khan yeah. is fascinating to me. Um, on that note, I, I feel we do... I think we might need to give a little bit more context about how exactly the campaign was racist. I and mean, we've been talking about the sort of the colonialist politics of the video and the leaflet. Yeah, the orientalizing aspects yes. of... But there is, I mean, you mentioned Sadiq Khan's, you know, the Muslim, the Muslim Labour candidate. Um, and that was a significant feature in Zach Goldsmith's campaign, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, it was. There were explicit links made both by Zach Goldsmith's campaign and by the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, David Cameron, in Parliament that explicitly linked Sariq Khan to extremism. Yes. The, the quote was, Sadiq Khan, on multiple occasions, has shared a platform with extremists, has shared a platform with a person who supports IS. So the, so the, the person he's referring to there is Suleiman Ghani, who's a, who's a cleric uh, and public figure. And, uh, in London. In London. He's based in London, yes. he works in London, yes. and he works with Muslim communities yes. in London. And David Cameron said, quote, this man supports IS. Uh, at which point Suleiman Ghani responded by tweeting, A, that the Prime Minister has said this in Parliament, and therefore because parliamentary privilege exists, he can't be sued for slander. Uh, and B, Suleiman Ghani also showed, and this did the rounds on social media, about the number of times he shared a platform with various Conservatives, including Zach Goldsmith. Uh, so that sort of, you know, uh, backfired a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it backfired in exactly the way Suleiman Ghani intended it yes. to. Uh, and then, in a in a way that sort of was even more shameful, uh, after the election, after after Zach Goldsmith lost, uh, Cameron uh, issued a, a mealy mouthed apology that that tried to pass his his original quote, which is "This man supports IS," by saying that he he meant that Sullivan Ghani supports an Islamic state, not the IS or the Daesh, uh, which is. Uh, Clever. It's a, it's a clever passing, but, you know, not particularly effective. It's, it is fascinating. The, you've mentioned that y it, it almost gives the Goldsmith campaign too much credit to link, to link the, the pandering to the middle class British Hindu community with the claims that Sadiq Khan is an extremist or supports extremism, that they themselves were not necessarily making a connection between the two. But you and I see quite an explicit link between those two. Um, you've mentioned divide and rule, um, which is quite a popular historiographical narrative about colonialism in India, um, namely that the government used specific policies and administrative tactics to create divisions within the Indian population to keep them from coming together in solidarity and advocating for independence yeah. effectively. Yes. 
Um, and this was a, a kind of micro attempt to divide and rule London's very powerful South Asian community um, in terms of electoral yeah. power, but also in terms of economic yes. and community power. Yes, so uh, we mentioned the leaflets, uh, the pamphlets in, in before, and uh, there were some pamphlets where Zach Goldsmith talks about Tory involvement, conservative involvement in various Hindu festivals like Janmashtami and Diwali and Sikh festivals like Vasakhi and so on. Uh, no mention of Eid or any Muslim festival of, of any kind. Um, so, and again, I, I, I think you're right, I don't think the campaign made any kind of connection between the targeting of the British Asian population, what they saw as the, the entire British Asian population, and the Islamophobia. I think I think in their minds it the, the two were separate. But if you if you study the the campaign strategy, and if you study the video and the and the leaflets in particular, then it it is obvious that they are basically setting up a division between the good. British Asian and the bad British Asian. The good British Asian is typically Hindu or Sikh. Uh, the good British Asian is upwardly mobile to conservative voting, middle class, successful, uh, westernized. Uh, the bad British Asian is Muslim, working class, religious, conserv- like um, conservative in a way that isn't capital C capital conservative. C conservative. Conservative, you know, fundamentalist or orthodox or whatever. Not Muslim, truly British. Not truly British. Uh, and the way in which they ran the campaign, it was very clear that they had this division in mind. And then when it came to trying to run a negative campaign against Sadiq Khan, Sadiq Khan seemed to fit the bad Asian stereotype uh, very well. Or at least they could they could make that stick. Or they thought they could. They thought they could make that stick, yeah. yeah. So you have, when you have a, f- a photo of Sadiq Khan working in London communities, visiting various groups of constituents in London, some of whom are Muslim, because there is a sizable and, and long, you know, historical Muslim community in London. Um, That you take that photo out of context, and it is you know, it's a perfect yeah. image f- to mobilize Islamophobic yeah, feelings. Uh, there, were, there were lots of, uh, the use of lots of shots, with, uh, photographs with Sadiq Khan standing next to women wearing the hijab. Uh, and, you know, again, subliminally almost, or sometimes not, sometimes explicitly, uh, suggesting that this is a man who is not very British because he's very Muslim. And those two are clearly set up as mutually incompatible, you know. So so to the degree in which you are a Muslim, to that degree you are not quite British, uh, which is a, a mutual exclusiveness which doesn't really work for Hindus or Sikhs, I don't think. Well, the, the Hindu and Sikh discourse is one that mobilizes kind of the more old-school multiculturalism approach, which is that... Um, there's a shared history of empire. The empire no longer exists. So now there's a sh- there's a shared um, exchange of cultures and traditions, and one which is based on partnership and you know this idea of mutual respect. This sort of mobilizing a um, you've given us all these beautiful festivals and all this wonderful food and all these lovely yes. curries that we now eat. 
and we've given you railways and you know it, there is yeah. this this colonial nostalgia at work here that muslims are being excluded from yes um no matter where they're from yeah. or their role yeah. in you know the actual colonial history yes. at, yeah. at work um it's interesting you mentioned setting up city khan visually and um and discursively as being not british enough we've mentioned the promotion of a pro modi perspective what i find really interesting is that there is there is a recognition that many british indians have very deep connections to india and mm-hmm. to britain which in a non muslim context is spun as being positive yes. is spun as being this this language yes. of partnership between yes. the states and therefore yes. this language of shared cultural understanding and appreciation yes. on an individual and community level so while there is a promotion of of a pro india yeah. and british indians can be both indian and british yes um muslims yes can't yes so it it actually pulls sadiq khan out of britain yeah. it makes him less british it it severs his ties with britain but it also severs his ties with the subcontinent it also says he isn't south asian he isn't south asian either yes, yes. um he is this more ambiguous amorphous yes. muslim yeah this deterritorialized yeah. muslim and that's that's a very good point it reminds me as well there were a number of articles after the election after sadiq khan won the 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 commonest form of reporting of that news was this is europe's first muslim mayor and there was a number of articles which made the case that in claiming sadiq khan as Europe's first Muslim mayor what was happening was uh, a rewriting of European history with Muslims taken out so there were lots of references to Muslim effective mayors in southern Spain and eastern Europe going back to the 13th 14th 15th centuries uh, so if you and if you the point was if you read the history in red narrative in that sense then islam and europe of course don't turn out to be these these mutually opposite things and islam the the connection between europe and islam isn't particularly new or particularly modern um uh, and it's interesting the way in which even when sadiq khan's victory was being celebrated there was still a sense of uh rewriting european history as if islam is other to europe And this is, you know, this is the classic clash of civilizations yes. argument, this the Huntington yes. argument um which funnily enough diplomats and and government officials still and political yes. scientists still yes. believe yes. to have some basis in yes. reality yes. um and and it is even progressive liberal um pro Sadiq Khan voices yes. have this this belief and this assumption that Sadiq Khan's victory was momentous yes. because it it's new yeah and it just continues to reinforce yes the Islamophobic position yes. that 
Sadiq Khan is special. Yes. That he is, you know, as this this second generation Pakistani who grew up um, on a British council estate is foreign. Yeah. Because it is so unlikely that he would become the mayor of London. Yeah. It, the rhetoric is, is not unlike the, the rhetoric after Obama's victory. Uh, you know, this is the, the outsider whose first name is Barak and second name is Hussein. And, you know, he, he's, it is, he doesn't quite belong to America. And, you know, he's, he's, it is so unlikely that he would ever get to be where he is. Um, yeah. yeah, which is, you know, f- for so many Americans, that yeah. is absurd. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it is truly yeah. absurd. It's a complete rewriting of the history of, of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talking about America, there's another connection between what we've just been saying in America, isn't there? Well, there's a... There's a lot of connections. We go back and forth. You always want to talk about Trump. <laughs> and I always don't want to talk about Trump. And I, I, I mean, there's, there's specific reasons for that, which is that we will end up talking about Trump more and more explicitly right. over the summer. And so I don't want to yeah. waste, I don't want to, you know, play all yes. our Trump cards. <laughs> oh, I love that fun. It'll okay. never... It'll come back. It will. We will. We will resurrect that yes, pun. Yes. More times than I think we are prepared for, but there, there is. There's always room for Donald Trump. I think on this podcast, there's a lot of connections that we could make here, um, but I think explicitly we wanted to talk about the role of the rhetoric and discourse of the Hindu right in connection to the London mayor elections because the Goldsmith campaign mobilized some of those tropes, but also used a more insidious way of getting some of the the values of the Hindu right into their election strategy, their campaign strategy. Um, So, so in other words, uh, the the ways in which the Goldsmith campaign, and as, as I said, I, I think the Goldsmith campaign did this inadvertently, but the way they uh, reinforced certain values of the Hindu right in terms of Islamophobia mirrors very much so in a much more direct, explicit way uh, the way in which some sections of the Hindu right have embraced Trump. Um, they are you know, there have been photos during the rounds of, of Hindu, Hindus performing religious rituals, pujas and so on, in order to bless Trump and and, and hailing him as their saviour. Uh, there, there's footage, during, uh, there's the images during the rounds in which sort of Trump gets morphed into this surreal Hindu god deity figure. Uh, and I think the Islamophobia there is much more direct. Uh, so the Hindu right sees Trump and Trump's Islamophobia and recognizes a kindred spirit, um, and therefore they, they take him up and, and you know um, conveniently ignores the fact that were Trump ever to be elected, it would not be any good for any Hindus living in America either. Um, you were going to say something. Well, Time Magazine, yeah. Time Magazine's approach to this 
was to post a photograph of um, the activities that you're talking about with a blurb that said at this in the same week that Donald Trump went viral for making fun of Indian accents and making fun of Indian call centers in a discussion about outsourcing of American jobs to India, there is a surge of a particular subset of the Indian population's support for Trump. Um, And drawing a a connection between those two things. There's also, I mean, we we debated a a long time ago now the relationship between Trump and fascism. Um, The Hindu right, of course, you refer to the government of India as a fascist government, um, which is a... uh, your politics. Um, And there is a historical, a deep historical link between the Hindu right and 20th century European fascism. There are deep connections between Hitler's state, um, Nazi Germany, and the formation of the Hindu right. And so for me, this is, you know, many political scientists have said that Trump's rhetoric isn't fascist. Um, but for me, this is probably a more interesting way in. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, in a sense, it, it does it does make sense yeah. why pro-fascist Indians might gravitate towards Trump, yes. who embodies a number of fascist tropes. He mobilizes fascist discourse. Yes. Um, historically, there's a good reason for yes. that. And, 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 of course, it's, I mean, you know, going back to our episode last week about flying while Muslim, it goes back to this is all happening in the context of a wider, more general, more all-pervasive Islamophobia, where in various contexts, whether it's Modi's India, whether it's Cameron's Britain, whether it's America and Trump, uh, or, or indeed you know, various racist attacks in Australia and so on, uh, that globally the Muslim figure is comes to be seen more and more and more as a threat in and of themselves, in and of as an individual. Uh, the Muslim becomes a threat and it becomes and has to be policed more brutally, more and more brutally. And any political party that is seen to uh, police Muslims more violently is one to support. So, so you know, Modi's followers in India are supporting Trump because they see in him a similar spirit in terms of targeting Muslims. Uh, and Zach Goldsmith thinks he can target Indian Hindus living in Britain by painting Sadiq Khan as an extremist. Exactly. And by recognizing, acknowledging, and promoting an official kind of state distinction between Asian Hindus and Asian Muslims and saying to Asian Hindus, you are part of us, we're protecting you from this threat. Um, 
which is fascinating. I mean, it's it's interesting too. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how this is exa- this is exactly how Donald Trump and other um, birthers tried to other Barack Absolutely. Obama by calling him a Muslim, yes. which is you know yes. at this point it's old news because Barack Obama is sadly leaving office, um, and it is exactly that unidentifiable, yeah. very ambiguous, deterritorialized yeah. Muslim. It, it reminds me, I've been thinking about this of late, it reminds me of that, do you remember that moment in the Obama-McCain uh, election when uh, a woman stood up in a McCain town hall and talked about how she's afraid because Obama is, an, is she's read about him and he's an Arab and he's a, he's a Muslim and he's, you know, she doesn't trust him. And McCain was celebrated for standing up to her. And what he said was, no, ma'am, he's not an Arab, he's a decent family man. And nobody, nobody in the media, nobody on the, anywhere in the mainstream media said, hang on a sec, are we really thinking of those two as opposites? As mutually exclusive. So you, you are either an Arab or a decent family man. Um, and throughout that campaign, when... Uh, after various people on the right kept kept attacking Obama for being a Muslim, it took Colin Powell to come out and say, "Actually, he isn't, and it wouldn't matter if he was." Nobody, nobody in the Democratic Party felt able to say that, um, and that is how deep this this seam of Islamophobia has got. Where e- when even people who are being celebrated for standing up against Islamophobia are doing it in such Islamophobic terms. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's made possible very much by thinking about the, the global population as being globalized. So you can very easily construct Muslims in any number of terms and you can construct non-Muslims as being possible Muslims in any number of terms. Um, And the Arab question is such a fascinating one because most of the world's Muslims are not Arab anyway. Um, And of course, Barack Obama attended, he made the news for a while for having attended as a four-year-old child a madrasa in Indonesia. It's Indonesia was where he was. Um, And Indonesia, of course, has a huge population of Muslims, very few of whom are Arab. Um, And and the British British right has has engaged in just as much of this in their own terms. Yes. in order to construct Britain as being a particular kind of place. And, you know, you see it in other debates. Where we talk about it when we talk about migration. Yes. This is exactly the same kind of, of rhetoric um, that's being mobilized as as Britain and parts of the Middle East are facing the biggest migration crisis ever. Yeah. Um, and... It's not just London, it's not just Trump, it's not just Modi. This is this is actively constructing is, yeah. a picture of the global world yes. that we live in. Yes. And yes. Muslims as being the threat to global yes. order. Yes. Which sounds like a conspiracy theory as I say it out yes. loud, but I'm not sure that no, it is. It isn't. It isn't. Which is makes you feel a little helpless. Yeah, a little terrified.
on that note. On that cheery note. Cheery note. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, if you like us, then uh, you might like... Uh, you will like. You will like. You're uh, guaranteed to like. Uh, another podcast called Stage Blether by our friend and colleague Sam Haddo, uh, which is a podcast about Scottish theatre. and. Uh, but so much more than yes, that. so much more. It's, it's very, very good. Um, get in touch. Uh, send us your comments on Twitter or SoundCloud or Facebook. Um, you know where to find us. Uh, if you get our podcast on iTunes, then rate us, review us. It helps other people find us. And see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been the State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?